0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you
1: did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. Annie Schwartz was a crime reporter with the Milwaukee Journal when one night she received a tip from a police source about a ghastly discovery at a local apartment. She rushed to the crime scene and quickly got to work. The next morning, she wrote a headline that shocked readers across the city, Body Parts Litter Apartment. Those were the words plastered upon the front page of the Tuesday publication on July 23, 1991. When Annie wrote about the gruesome scene located at an apartment on North 25th Street, she had no idea she would be the first to break the story of one of America's most prolific and horrifying serial killers, Jeffrey Dahmer. Annie has since written books covering the Dahmer case and was featured in the new series, My Son Jeffrey, The Dahmer Family Tapes, which is available to stream now on Fox Nation. Today, Annie joins me to discuss what it was like to cover the appalling case as the story developed and shares the impact the Dahmer horror continues to have on the Milwaukee community.
0: It's hard to believe, Emily, that 32 years later we're still having this conversation. It really is, because I remember when this happened, and it was, it was crazy, it was an amazing story when it happened, but I never imagined that it would last 32 years and that the public would continue its interest In the case, 32 years later, I also didn't imagine that we would continue to find out new things about this case, such as the tapes that we talked about on on the Fox Nation piece uh, with uh, Jeffrey Dahmer's father recording him in his jailhouse conversations in prison. Uh, But it's a crazy story. It's a story that reporters uh, dream about, if that doesn't sound too awful. However, it it was uh, it was just something you never thought you'd cover in your hometown. And this many years later, that still remains a a, a crazy, just a, I, I got to find another word for crazy because it is, uh, it It really is the, the most accurate word to describe the sentiments surrounding that case here still.
1: So walk us through exactly what happened. How did the events unfold as the Wisconsin community, Milwaukee, and then eventually the nation became aware of who they deemed the monster of Jeffrey Dahmer.
0: We had talked about the uh, impression uh, that I have of the the story this many years later, and that is renewed every time we have one of these conversations. I can tell you that I was a young reporter. I was covering the criminal justice beat. I was cops and courts, probably the most unenviable beat because you were out all night on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday's. Doing crime stories during the week you were covering court. And I have developed some good police sources. One of those sources called me on July twenty-second, nineteen ninety-one and said, Annie, you gotta get over here. He said, There's a it, it, it looks like there's a guy that's been saving body parts in his apartment. We really don't we really don't know. And, you know, Emily, even as you and I sit here and talk this way, I still have to catch myself and make sure that I don't say something that is incredibly offensive to people. Because you become so used to talking about this case, you sometimes can forget how horrific it really was for everyone. But that was the that's how it happened. I, I got to the uh, to the scene. I was the only reporter that was there at the time. There were just a few police cars there. And they're really I think they were still kind of figuring out what they had when they were in Dahmer's apartment. Because this isn't something they had ever seen either. Imagine being those beat cops walking into that apartment, not knowing what they were going to find, and all of a sudden, finding not just human remains, but these very graphic Polaroids that Jeffrey Dahmer had taken of his victims in various stages of dismemberment. It was unthinkable. It's still unthinkable.
1: And so that evening, as you arrived to the scene, you said you were the only reporter. Mm -hmm. How close were you able to get? Did you go inside the apartment? What did you learn that night as the search was being conducted, which did take hours of Mm -hmm. Dahmer's apartment? What was your role in that? What did you learn? What did you report?
0: That night, when I was there, I was the first reporter on the scene. As I say, there were just a few police cars on the scene. I walked into the apartment and I stood at the threshold of the apartment door. I didn't go in, but I just kind of peeked my head in to take a look and see what uh, what it looked like. What you know, you want to take everything in while you're trying to figure the story out. And when people say, "How did the officers not notice you?" I always say they were looking at the most unimaginable photographs. ...that Dahmer had taken of his victims, I promise you they didn't notice Annie Schwartz, you know, standing in the doorway. But I, uh, it, what's important is that I looked inside the apartment to see an apartment that looked very much like a regular single guy's apartment. This wasn't a, didn't look like a torture chamber. This wasn't a house of horrors. It was a regular person's apartment. And then I began to report the story. I began to interview the neighbors. Do you remember anything about your neighbor? Do you remember anything about him? Is there anything that comes to mind? And the people there would talk about the smell in the apartment, but they really didn't have that many observations about Jeffrey Dahmer. And that's because he kept close to himself. He kept completely to himself. He he didn't socialize with his neighbors, contrary to what you may have seen in some of the, the reenactments or or movies that have been done on the case, he was not a social person. He didn't you know, invite his neighbors over for a sandwich. He didn't speak to a lot of people. He kept to himself because he was busy indulging in his own secret fantasies that none of us can possibly even imagine.
1: You mentioned the smell, and it's my understanding uh, from the responding detective mm-hmm. that there was a pervasive smell in the apartment that was chemical and sweet, and that there were subsequent odors emanating from, for example, the mattress, which was indeed decomposing bodily fluids and body parts. The smell that the neighbors reported smelling and noticing, was it the chemical, the sweet smell? What did they tell you?
0: The neighbors said it just stunk. They said there was a bad smell coming from the apartment. They didn't say it smells like death. They said there was just a bad smell. They said maybe it was like rotting meat or something. You know, we try to think of it in the, you know, with the prism of, of, of now, as opposed to 32 years ago, when nobody had the slightest idea that something like this could be possible. So when people reported... There was a nasty smell in the apartment. They really didn't go that much further. But they did tell police that it smelled chemical. It smelled uh, it smelled perhaps like maybe rotten meat because the superintendent at the building even assisted Dahmer with trying to clean out the, uh, the freezer. He thought maybe that was it. But that, of course, was not it. Jeffrey Dahmer had body parts all over the apartment that were decomposing every day. And toward the end, right before he was caught... In, those, in that month or two before he was caught, the bodies were quite literally piling up. And he was becoming more and more manic. He was becoming less and less careful. This is what happens with serial killers toward the time when they are, are eventually caught. They get sloppy. And Dahmer was getting sloppy. He was killing more frequently. And it was becoming more and more diff- uh, difficult for him to hide his crimes.
1: As the original reporter that broke the news of this heinous find by the police department, um, you then wrote a book. Can you share with listeners now some of your findings that you wrote in your book, some of what you've gathered that we don't know, that we haven't heard, that aren't part of the mainstream knowledge and understanding of Jeffrey Dahmer and his victims?
0: The book was originally written in 1992, right when the trial was over. I covered the trial for a then-fledgling network called Court TV, uh, which I could never understand. I thought, geez, who's going to sit in front of television and watch trials? But little did I know what would end up happening. Um, I, uh, I covered the trial, and then the first book ended when Jeffrey Dahmer walks out of the door of the courtroom behind the judge and goes to prison, and life in prison, that's it. But then he's murdered in prison in 1994, and... I I, I had never really done anything. I had never written anything subsequent to his stay in prison until 30 years later when a publisher contacted me and said, what if we go back 30 years? What if we go back 30 years and you do you finish the story? Finish the story of what happened, what was his experience in prison? How was he murdered in prison? And then also kind of do a, where are they now? So I did. I went back. Thirty years later, and talked to uh, cops that were involved, some of the same people that you've spoken with about this case. Uh, I went back and and talked to any neighbors that I could find. You know, this is a this is a story that national media love to cover, but in Milwaukee, not so much. You know, they they don't really like to keep bringing it up. But I saw a value in doing a, how has everyone been affected in the last 30 years by this case? I did learn some interesting things. I learned some interesting things from Mike Dubis, who was one of the the first detectives who responded to the scene. And when when we talked, he said, you know, Annie, everything can be going along fine in my day. And maybe I'm at a hospital or in an industrial setting, and I'll catch a whiff of like that cleaning fluid. He said, and it stops me right in my tracks, and I go right back there. And that's surprising for me to hear. I have spent my my career with law enforcement, and I see police officers, detectives, who have seen the most difficult things as just really tough creatures. But this, to, to hear a very seasoned detective say, this was incredible, I I, I still go back there, was surprising to me.
1: Can you share a little bit more about who was changed
0: and how? I spoke with the medical examiner, who was the person who looked at all of the bodies of Dahmer's victims. He is the one that essentially had to put the puzzle together to find out who these people were and to see if he could determine how they died. And he said that he sometimes has encountered victims' families or even police officers families who don't even want to come near him. There's a great superstition around this case, uh, Emily, where where people just feel like it's it's almost otherworldly and they, they don't like to talk about it, they don't like you to talk about it, and they just don't they don't want anything to do with anyone who had anything to do with that case. So that surprised me to hear Dr. Jeffrey Jensen, who'd been the medical examiner talk about this he does presentations all over the world we all do We all do it from our own seat um I, I I had never thought that I was changed by the case but I suppose you know uh being forever attached to the case of the serial killer is something that that changes you that that makes it different. I spoke with another medical examiner, someone who did not do the Dahmer case, but he was the head of the National Medical Examiners Association and said, "This case is the is is kind of the 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 gold standard when we are learning about forensics and learning about identifying victims to find out how people have been changed was was really the that was the surprise for me uh, going back to Columbia Correctional Institution uh, trying to find out if any of the guards who had slammed the door in my face when I went there in 1994." Were still around or still uh, wanting to speak, and they were not. Uh, I talked to people in the media. I talked to a news director that I worked with at a local television station, uh, Renee Raffaele Bakken, who said, "You know, it was it was crazy to have to sit there and try to and have your finger on the mute button to figure out what could be shared publicly and what couldn't when we were running the trial all day. Somebody had to sit in that room and hear that feed all day long of the most awful things that you can imagine. Those people, we don't think about them. We don't think about people that were kind of forced to hear about the case. I went back and spoke with some of the victims' families, the ones that will talk to me, uh, and there's a feeling from a lot of them that they believe people are making money on this case and they are upset that they are not. Uh, They're upset that they're not getting a, a part of this and it's hard to explain to them that, you know, this is a true crime story. It really, you know, when you, when you write a book like that, it's, you know, it's not Harry Potter. You are, you know, you really are uh, writing something that's more of a historical piece than something that, you know, that makes money. But they're seeing a uh, TV series. They're seeing Netflix. They're seeing all of these different pieces and saying, well, where is our part of this? Uh, they also have alleged that they have not been contacted by a number of the different parties. Uh, again, that, that I, I don't know what the real story is there. The producers of some of these pieces have said they reached out to the families and, and got nothing back. So I'm, I, I choose to believe them, but we were all affected by this case. All of us, because I, I think that you absolutely do not imagine that something with these kinds of details is going to be something that you're going to discuss at cocktail parties. This is something you're going to discuss when someone meets you and says, this is my friend Annie Schwartz. You know, she wrote the Dahmer book. And people will launch right away into into crazy questions. My my direct messages on social media are a scary place. I mean, I I still get questions from people. Uh, I had someone the other day who asked me, what kind of cologne did Jeffrey Dahmer wear? And I get, a, I mean, I get a lot of really strange questions. I get a lot of, of communication from people who say that they met him or they knew him or they escaped from him. I don't know if those are true. I don't. I, I did all that research back in, back in 1991 and 92 when the, the book was being written. And I don't know if that's true. You know, you cover crime. So you know that the bigger the crime is, the bigger the story is, the more people there are that surface who say, oh, I knew that guy or I was his neighbor or I remember something when that's not necessarily the truth.
1: We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. Hi,
0: everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think.
1: Listen live or get the podcast now at com. Did you find in 1991 that the subsequent reports and sort of word on the street that there was a ghost man who would frequent certain bars and be, you know, would be seen as sort of murky... Um, penumbral figure that would leave with men and and the, that meant the other man would subsequently disappear. Were there truth to those rumors? If only that, the rumors, were they true at the time? Is that what people were saying even before he got caught? Is there any truth to that?
0: The only information I have about whether or not there was a, an awareness in the gay community in Milwaukee that people were disappearing is that there were a couple of the the people that I interviewed. There was a, at least one bartender who worked at one of the more uh, popular gay bars who said that there were, there were whisperings about that, that people were, that, you know, whatever happened to so-and-so. But, you know, the, the thing that we have to remember is we're talking about the gay community in a Midwestern town in the 1980s and 90s a very closeted community that wasn't very likely to share with other people anything that was happening in their community, including the police, and maybe even including each other. Because when you were out in in the gay bars of Milwaukee during that time, you were were probably living a separate life, a secret life from the one that your family knew. So Mm -hmm. if you disappeared, your family, if they knew perhaps that you were living this this other life. They would say, "Well, you know, we haven't really heard from him or kind of separated from us." or some of some people said when they came out to their families, they were cast aside. So the idea that there was someone, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer is very different than, the Gilgo Beach serial killer, or BTK. Those are serial killers who taunted the police and who wanted their works to be known. They left bodies where people could find them. Uh, uh, BTK taunted the police. Dahmer did none of that. Dahmer was, was, from my research, uh, was purely someone who was trying to act out some very graphic, uh, specific uh, sexual fantasies with his victims, and it wasn't about anyone else.
1: Some argue that there are occurrences where, you know, essentially communities who have had a very traumatic event, and naturally so, they want to move on. They also do not want to be defined by that horrific event. Both are totally, of course, understandable. And also, some have argued that here in particular, the type of victims... It was which were young gay men Mm -hmm. um, that those were designated discardable by society at the time and certainly by Jeffrey Dahmer who preyed on them um, with abandon and that that might be a reason why the to your point the conversation while sort of thrillist in nature from those that weren't close to their incitus, really it was shunned by many who were there. And then the third piece of that is the sheer Horror, the sheer grotesqueness of these crimes, the awful nature of everything it is, it is nauseating to listen to or read the details that for those reasons, in part, to respond to your comment earlier about Milwaukee's reaction, mm-hmm. that that fed into why the community shut down about this and didn't want to talk about it and weren't willing to go that extra mile to share with journalists and or law enforcement. Can you speak to your opinion of any of those uh, floated theories?
0: I think that one, one thing that, I, that I, I, I do have to correct, and that is that um, Jeffrey Dahmer didn't hate young, good looking, buff men of color. That's who he was attracted to. Right. So mm-hmm. he did not hate black people. He did not hate Hispanic people. He didn't hate them. What he did was he wanted to try to figure out a way to keep them with him forever. And that is what led to all of the horrible stories you've heard about what he tried to do post-mortem with his victims in trying to keep them with him. Mm-hmm. So the when, when people want to bring up the race piece in connection with this story, what is commonly said is... That Dahmer preyed on people of color, uh, young men of color who were gay, and they were people that society wouldn't, uh, you know, wouldn't miss. Uh, Which I suppose, you know, may have been true at the time. That when something happened in that community, it wasn't necessarily something that got the attention of, you know, of of the, the city fathers or anyone else, or even the police. So... Dahmer, he killed people that he was attracted to. He wasn't trying to rid the earth of prostitutes or some other you know type of person. He wasn't trying to rid the earth of gay people. Given all the conversations that I have had with the psychiatrist that talked to him, and you know, it, it, just reading about about Dahmer himself, I I, I think that it's it, it really is very clear that he wasn't targeting a group of people so much as he was going after that which he was attracted.
1: What I'm hearing is that he found sexually gratifying a certain type of human, and that is thus who he preyed upon. And I think the additional societal factors also play into the conversation, as you brought up BTK and Gilgo Beach, which is that sex workers are hideously often shunned by society and especially depending on the decade in which they are, have gone missing or gone murdered, then there's less attention placed on the whereabouts or there's less resources and, and they're also no, no, vulnerable um, as well. The gay population that you mentioned in 1991 in Milwaukee, which was that it's it's harder if someone is living a double life, it's difficult to trace them and know whereabouts and be able to learn immediately if someone's gone missing, if that was just them Exhibiting maybe a prior behavior where they would go away for a couple days and and then come back like th- those are things that led to a difficulty ascertaining right. that all these young men were missing in this regard um, and so you know to take this a step further the the point about the attention is that um, you know law enforcement a, a murder is a murder and law enforcement is dedicated to solving any homicide and certainly catching any serial killer. Um, Regardless of creed or national origin or work. Always, always. Uh here, you know, the, the issue was it wasn't discovered. The monster wasn't discovered until so many young men had been already murdered. Right. Um
0: bodies weren't popping so, up. Right. So and so it wasn't, you know, people they weren't right. discovering, you know, that oh my gosh, somebody's out there. You know, I, I have to right. say, Emily, that he Dahmer was really clever. Very clever as serial killers typically are. That's why they go so long without getting caught. And what he would do when he was talking with with a prospective victim in a bar is he would always talk to them. And this is per his confession to to police. Uh, He would talk with the person and say, so what was it like for you when you came out? What was it like in your family? You still, you know, close with them or and the person if the person would say, oh, gosh, my family was great. We're still very close. I was really lucky. Dahmer would pass that person over as a victim. He would not choose them. He specifically and purposely chose people who he believed would not be missed. He chose the guy that says, "You know, my family doesn't even know I'm gay. Um, I am, you know, I, I have this other life that I'm living out here, you know, at, at night. I could never tell them." Or I told my family and they threw me out of the house. Those were the people that Jeffrey Dahmer targeted. He he was very calculated about who he chose.
1: I had the pleasure and honor of speaking with Nikki Carbone um who had dinner with the alleged Gilgo Beach murderer and she said exactly that he asked her initially and to a detailed degree all about her inner circle and essentially ascertaining whether yes she would be missed and whether she had a community of support She did have a community of support. She would be missed. And and that story, you'll have to listen to another episode for the rest of that. Um, But the point remains that that fact finding on the part of a successful serial killer is very important because without that research, which sounds so callous, but to them, it's their research, um, then that could lead to a slip up and getting caught. Annie, did you ever talk with someone? You mentioned that you've heard a lot of people talk to you about their near misses or escapes from him. Were there ever any stories that you were able to corroborate or stories that might still be corroborated um, at all? Could you share any of one or two of those?
0: I did mention uh, one or two of those in the in the book, which was to talk about the fact that there were a couple of people who, after Dahmer was discovered, said that they had gotten away from him. But again, the fact that they were living a lifestyle that wasn't exactly embraced by their family or by the community, they didn't report that to police. So there were a couple of of young men that I spoke with who seemed very credible. Um, Typically, they were people that got away from Dahmer toward the end of his spree because he was getting so Mm. careless. Uh, He had a system for how he would target and acquire his victims and... When he got toward the end of his the end of his spree, he just, you know, he just lost control of of any of the methods that he'd been using to keep people. So, you know, I I talked to these people that had escaped Dahmer. Gosh, this would have been way back in in 1991 and 92. Uh, A couple of them testified at the trial. And I can only imagine now they didn't want to speak with me when I went back to do the 30 years later. Because I can't imagine that they want to go back in time to that part of their lives that was linked to a serial killer. But, you know, that's my impression of people that that got away. There probably are more. There could be more. You know, Dahmer was experimenting in the beginning. He was trying to figure it out. He would get someone to come home with him, and he wanted them to stay with him. He didn't want them to leave. So his dream was to get people in kind of like a zombie-like state so they would never leave, but so they also would never ask him for anything. They wouldn't make any demands on him. And so that's how the, he began experimenting with that. And it's not unusual to think that perhaps he failed at one point and someone was able to to get away.
1: Are you able to share the details of one of those stories how they exactly escaped? At what point did they realize it was a nefarious intent and they escaped? How was that?
0: The memory that I remember the most from one of the would-be victims was the fact that he, the way that he described it to me is he said, it, I just got such a creepy feeling from him. There was just a feeling that that something was weird. Remember that Dahmer liked to watch um, videos with his with his victims he liked to watch um uh the exorcist but he also had the movie faces of death that he enjoyed watching so that was a the, the, the people that i've spoken with the, the, especially the one young man that i remember specifically said there was just that feeling and i interviewed him in spanish uh because he was a he was a spanish speaker so i'm i'm trying to kind of you know it, turn the turn it around for you to say that he just had said that there was just a feeling, just a just a feeling that that something was very wrong with this guy that something wasn't right. and mm. I just had to get out of there. Mm. so those are the those are really some of them were were drugged a little. They thought they were drugged a bit. Some of them, you know, kind of you know, Dahmer was experimenting in the beginning with how much of a sedative he should give his victims. How much did he need to give them so that they would, uh, you know, pass out, and then he could have his way with them. Uh, so if he didn't give them enough, like the case of young Conorac Synthesimphone, the young uh, Laotian boy that, that got away from Dahmer, but then later uh, was returned, you know, Dahmer was, was always experimenting, and sometimes the experiment didn't work.
1: Can you share with us, after you spoke with Dahmer's psychiatrist, it is so difficult to imagine um, a monster being born like this, you know, coming out of the womb like this. It's also difficult to imagine the depth of the depravity of Dahmer could be created um, by nature or nurture. What are your thoughts on the origins and the development of Dahmer's uh, depraved sexual fantasies?
0: I'll go by what the psychiatrist told me, and then just my own research, but I'm not a psychiatrist. So what I can tell you, though, is that th- this is abandonment, fear of abandonment taken to a whole other level. So Jeffrey Dahmer was very much abandoned by his parents when he was a, when he was young. In the jailhouse conversations that you hear, in the tapes that you will hear when you hear Dahmer's father talking to him, and he'll say... What was the what was the happiest time of your life? And then there's this giant pause where Dahmer's like, you know, trying to figure it out. And he'll say, when I would come home and, and, and mom was there to greet me. When I come home and someone was there to greet me. Uh, you know, those are very simple observations, but they mean everything in the case of Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, now, does every kid who survives divorce in his family, you know, end up being a serial killer? No. But I think we can look at a number of different factors that did contribute to that. Uh, he was a drinker. He was drinking, perhaps to kind of try to, he didn't fit in, didn't fit in with any of the kids at school. So he's drinking in high school, in junior high. He's already going drunk to school just so that he can try and get through the day. He knows he's different. He knows he's weird. He believes he's gay. He cannot come out to his father. Because his father's very, very strict, uh, has very, very strict faith. And just, you know, Dahmer knew that that was something that his father would never abide by, that that he would never. Dahmer did not believe that he he'd survive that if he told his father uh, what he was what he was feeling. But that's, you know, that's kind of the beginning of of Dahmer. You know, the he's interested from when he's little at bringing home roadkill, he didn't kill and torture animals. Some serial killers kill and torture animals themselves. He did not do that. He found animals that were already dead by the side of the road, and he'd bring them home. Dad is a chemist. So he asks Dad, hey, let you know, can we skin these? Can you kind of show me how that works? Well, I have to ask then, what's the difference between the kid who is wants to see that and becomes a taxidermist or a veterinarian And the kid that becomes a serial killer who ends up one day doing that to human beings. I don't know the answer to that, but that is a little bit about his, about his childhood. Always an outcast, always feeling alone, always feeling abandoned and always feeling that he just did not have anyone to turn to.
1: More of the Fox true crime podcast coming up. What do you make of the jailhouse tapes that you've mentioned? Mm -hmm. Um, So his father, interestingly, Called the night that detectives became aware of the apartment and the findings there. Um, He called, Detective Dubis answered, and the father, Lionel, said, You know, I'm just checking. Is my son okay? Because he had seen the news reports. Yes, he's okay. He's in custody now. He's fine. And then later, Lionel calls jail and has a series of conversations with Dahmer that he records that we now have. What do you make of the content of those? What do you make of, or your thoughts on any motive? Why, why, why all of that?
0: I think that Lionel Dahmer was on a search and may still be on that search, although he's very, very ill now. Mm -hmm. But he, I think he was on the search to figure out the why. And more personally, did I have something to do with this? What Mm -hmm. did I miss? I mean, Lionel Dahmer was obsessed, if you listen to the tapes, with what did I miss? What kind of fantasies did you have, Jeff? And where did those come from? Now, Lionel also started recording his son in jail because he had plans to write a book. But later on, I think when we, uh, Lionel had already written his, he had already written his book. And when he records their conversations um, at Columbia Correctional, I think it's even more obvious that Lionel's trying to figure out the why, just like we all are. He's trying to figure out what, you know, what did I do? What did, and, and then Dahmer, they have this bizarre exchange in the tapes where Lionel, where Dahmer reminds his dad, hey, remember when I was staying with grandma and you came over and I had that wooden box that I wouldn't open for you and you were insisting that I open it and I didn't want to? Um... And Lionel said, Well, yes, he said, I thought you had pornography in there. I wanted to see if you had pornography. And Dahmer said, No, I had the skull of my most recent victim in there. Now I mean, just imagine that you're you're hearing all this and and you're thinking, All right, did I what did I miss? And so I would I would say that this was a project that Lionel undertook perhaps initially, because he was going to write about the experience, but then later I think he's a man who's searching for what his role may have been in this.
1: I can't imagine a world in in which, you know, the extent of it is sort of two-dimensional, let's say. Your worst nightmare is pornography. And the actuality of the world is 20-dimensional. And you could never fathom what the reality is.
0: For Lionel Dahmer, the, the most awful thing he could imagine was his son has got gay pornography for him that was that was like oh my gosh that's please don't let it be that
1: what are your final thoughts the community of milwaukee um the victims families anything that you'd like to share with us as you've been following this case and following this tragedy and the the ripple effect of it frankly for so many years what are your thoughts today as we sit here
0: I continue to find it interesting that we're still having the conversation 32 years after the discovery. Uh, I find it uh, not surprising, I suppose, that I am having the conversation with national media, but local media really doesn't want anything to do with this case. They don't want to talk about it. If I mentioned to someone like a local reporter, I used to work in the media here, so I still have a lot of friends in the business. And when I said hey, there are new tapes coming out. There's going to be a new a new series coming out on Fox Nation about the tapes. And the, the looks that they give are just like, oh, God, haven't we had enough of that? Mm-hmm. And that really is the feeling here. That's the feeling here. And whenever this story gets back in the national news, people say, why can't you just let it go? And I'll say, I'm not the one keeping this alive. I'm not the one that's keeping the story alive. The interest in serial murder and true crime is higher than it's ever been. You know, back in 1991, there was no internet. There's no Facebook. There's no social media. Computers were pretty rudimentary. No cell phones, except for like the giant bag phone that I remember having to take out to the scene with me and then finding out that nobody in the newsroom charged it. It was dead. Um there, there was a different way that information spread back then that it didn't spread now. You know, now, you you know, we're, we're having this conversation in front of a national audience that's interested in this. A lot of the, the young people that are interested in this weren't even born when this case was discovered. I look at the new classes of police recruits. They, they, a lot of them, they weren't even born when the Dahmer case was first, you know, discovered. So it's a very long time ago. It doesn't seem like a very long time ago to me because I'm continuously asked to to talk about it. I just came back from the International Association of Women Police Conference in Auckland, New Zealand. And I, there's always a new audience. And the, the, the audiences outside the US are really curious. They have lots of questions. They want to know all about it. And so I think that it's it's just one of those stories that people are going to ask why and tell me more for as long as at least as long as I'm around, I suppose.
1: Annie, as you've been reporting on people's reactions to this story now for over 30 years, um, after Dahmer was beaten to death in prison, what has been the sentiment and the communications that you've received around that? Um, especially those from the correctional officers' community and the incarceration communities. Um, What do you hear?
0: I'm not a huge fan of conspiracy theories, so I'm not necessarily one who believes that all these correctional officers got together the day that Dahmer was murdered and decided not to look, decided not to pay attention. Um, I hear from correctional officers that it really is plausible for the people who were on duty not to have known what was going on or not to have seen what's going on. You know, that's still the one mystery piece to this is how in the world with all of those monitors, with all of those cameras in in a maximum security prison, was this allowed to happen that the three highest risk prisoners in the facility are together unsupervised in a bathroom? No one's wearing the black armband and crying, really. No one is. I, I don't, Remember anyone being sad about the death of Jeffrey Dahmer, except for his mother and his father. And I remember speaking mm-hmm. with his mother, not his stepmother, but his actual mother, who said when I called her to talk to her, she said, "Well, Annie, they can all be happy now. The monster's dead. That's her son, um, and Lionel. It's still his son. I I don't purport, I don't purport to know what's in his head." But those are really the only two people that I can think of that were really sad when they heard about the death of Jeffrey Dahmer. His attorney, Gerald Boyle, who I also went back and talked to, also went back and, and talked with the, the district attorney, uh, E. Michael McCann, from that time. They both said that they felt the tragedy of Dahmer's death was the fact that whether or not Dahmer was conning people when he said it, he wanted to be studied. He, he was willing to be studied. And is there something we could have learned from him? Would he have ever been honest with anybody that he was talking to about his crimes had he lived? Would he ever have really been honest or would it just be one big manipulation like it was his whole life when he was talking to any kind of, of authority figure? So that's the one piece of this that, that that's out there, which is, could we have studied him? Could we have studied his brain and his... His father was absolutely unequivocal. No, I want him cremated. I don't want him buried somewhere where people are going to go and, you know, and do weird things. I don't want anything to do with it. And his mother felt that it would be important to study him. But she lost that argument.
1: Well, now his parents mourn alongside all the parents of his victims and Mm -hmm. the communities in the world that mourn those victims also. Annie Schwartz, thank you. Thank you so much for so much relentless reporting and your dedication to publishing the truth and Mm -hmm. the real story and with such fairness and objectivity and compassion, uh, especially Mm -hmm. with a case like this that is so depraved and horrific. You've done so um, with great respect for the victims, and I'm grateful for that.
0: I appreciate that. I you know, there's there's a piece that that we didn't touch on that we don't have time to touch on, I suppose, which is the whole piece about what this did to the Milwaukee Police Department and the fact that there was this after the officers responded to Dahmer's apartment when called uh when they were called by a neighbor, they evaluated the situation and gave Conorak synthesome phone back to Dahmer. And that became that became the almost a bigger story than finding out we had a cannibal killer was the fact that that the police had an opportunity to intervene, but if you go back to to, I mean, pick a serial killer case, there's always somewhere in there where a where the uh, an official or there's a contact with police or somebody could have said something, and it and you know the whole thing could have been could have been blown up. But when this case turned from my God, we have a serial killer to, you know, the police were there and they gave one of Dahmer's victims. Back to him because they don't care about the gay community and they don't care about uh, the the minority community. That was an unfair characterization of the police. I still work in law enforcement. I still work with law enforcement. I do. Uh, I help them communicate during critical incidents, and so I'm I'm used to hearing them say, "How could anybody think we did this on purpose?" And that's what those two officers still say to this day. Do you really think we had that kind of craven disregard? For a human being that we let this 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 kid go back to Donner. And I, I'm I'm you know accused of being pro-police, so I guess I gotta live with that, right? Um I believe that the the police the police part of this story, that part of the story, is never accurately told.
1: To hear more stories like this, you can listen to our past episodes on the Fox True Crime Podcast. Go to Foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts to listen and subscribe. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts and Amazon Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com.